Hello, everyone. My name is Phil Reinders, Senior Minister here at Knox, and it's my pleasure to uh, reflect with you on this beautiful parable that Jesus tells. But before we do that, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Join me in prayer, would you? God, we thank you for this word that you've spoken to us. And we pray now, God, that you would take that word through your Holy Spirit and apply it to our hearts. Wherever we are, God, we pray, make this word come alive. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So a question for you to start out with, how is your experiment in joy going? Here at Knox, we have been calling everyone to this 60-day experiment in joy during these months of July and August, but more importantly, during this season of COVID. And uh, it's been a hard season. And so we thought, let's do this experiment in joy. Let's every day make the choice to rejoice. We're trying to cultivate this habit of rejoicing. And I hope it's been bringing you life and goodness in your life. But I'm sure some of you, uh, all of us, I bet, have struggled at some point with joy. And at those times, it's really good for us to sort of do a little analysis uh, and ask ourselves some questions. What happened? What stole my joy? You've probably heard the term killjoy. Um, those are those realities that ransack our gladness, that leave you slouched over with grumpiness. In the words of the Psalms, it's those things that make my soul downcast. And there's a long list of these killjoys, right? Fear, boredom, laziness, busyness, suffering. But what has been the big bully of gladness in your life? What's been the big killjoy? And now, because this is an experiment in joy, we're not going to beat ourselves up because we've struggled to experience joy all the time, right? Because an experiment is an exercise in learning. So we're learning. We're, we're growing in our capacity to live in joy. And we're growing a lifetime habit of joy here. So we're not going to beat ourselves up. Instead, we're going to learn so that tomorrow we can get up again and kick at those thieves of delight and continue to live in joy. So what are we learning? It's really important to learn about those killjoys so we can effectively counter them, resist them. And this parable of Jesus we read is helpful in that respect. It leads us into one celebration after another, but along the way it alerts us to some of the primary killjoys in our lives. This parable of the prodigal son, it's probably, uh, I think it's probably one of the most cherished parables that Jesus tells. However, it's, it's part of a series of parables that the whole chapter of Luke 15 is a part of. At the very beginning, Luke speaks, uh, G- Luke shows us Jesus speaking to Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, these were actually followers of Jesus, um, and, but they were started to mutter and complain about Jesus. They had left Galilee, so they were walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem, and Jesus. they were listening to Jesus' teaching, they were with him, they were good, they were devout people, they were probably people you might actually like to hang out with. And then, however, they start grumbling. And the event that causes this complaining, this grumbling, is the hospitality Jesus is showing. Jesus is eating and he's enjoying the company of all the wrong people. And so we hear the Pharisees say, he eats and drinks with sinners. And Jesus responds to them, to that charge, not by saying, 
Well, don't you think sinners is a little harsh term? No, instead, he says three parables. Well, four parables, actually. Jesus tells three parables that all end in joy. And then there is one last parable that leaves us hanging. In the first, there's a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one sheep, one that's lost. And on finding it, there's this, rejoice with me, for I found what's lost. And in the second parable, there's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one. She goes in search of that. And upon finding it, there's rejoicing, a celebration. Rejoice with me, I found what was lost. After both stories, Jesus says, all of heaven celebrates when something lost is found. And there's this simple pattern, right? Something dear and precious is lost, it's found, and there's a celebration going on. There's joy in being found. And these parables are all arranged with this sort of spiral of intensity and focus. First, there's one out of 99. Then there's one out of 10. And now in this parable, there's one out of two. And then at the very end, you're going to have one out of one. And there's the focus. And this third parable here, it's, it's, it's so much more richer in its detail. Um, it's, it's a richness of the feeling of lostness. You, you really can enter into what it is to be lost. There's this depth of the brokenness of relationship that you sense. In it, a man has two sons. And the younger one asks for his inheritance right now. Now, you know, inheritance you get when someone dies. So essentially, this son is saying, Dad, you're dead to me. And so this request, what he's asking for, is outrageous and scandalous. And what's even more scandalous is the father gives it to him. And so the father divides the assets between the two sons, which interestingly benefits the older son as well. So the older son benefits from his younger brother's scandalous actions. The older son hangs around home. He continues to maintain his share of the property of the family estate, which is probably the larger portion, being the elder son. So he worked the land. He preserved the family estate. But the younger one took the money and ran. And he freed from the rules and morality of his father. He squandered his inheritance in what Luke calls wild living, which is Luke's sanitized version of a life that's far worse that you can probably imagine quite well yourself. So the son, he blows it all. And when he ends up with nothing, he lands finally a really miserable job just to feed himself. He's taking care of pigs. And then we read this beautiful pivot, but he came to his senses. And when he did that, he remembered his father's house. Now, those two things always seem to be intimately connected. We remember the Father's house, and it's then that we remember who we are. This is so important for all of us. Your real home is really not the home in which you grew up with your parents. It has everything to do with your Heavenly Father who is waiting for you to come home to Him. He's the one who establishes our true identity. And the core of our identity, of who we are as human beings, as established by the Holy Spirit, is that we're adopted into this loving relationship, this relationship that Jesus has with the Father we get through him. Who are you? You are the beloved of God. That's who you are. 
that's where joy is found. That is home that you are meant for. But we've all left that home. For whatever reason, you, you couldn't believe that that was the truth about who you were. You were so convinced that somehow you had to prove it. You had to buy that love. You had to earn that approval somehow. And so you threw yourself into so many plans and strategies, looking for life, looking for love. But all those plans and strategies left you in this distant country of disappointment and loneliness and even despair. But then somewhere in you, this memory rose up. This memory of home. This home where you don't have to earn the love. Where it's a gift, where it's yours. And when that happens, when you, you, you come to yourself, you come to your senses. And all you need to do then is return home to your father. Return home to joy. But what stands in the way is the kill joy of guilt. Guilt lays upon us this heavy burden that just rules out the possibility of joy. And what's, what I find is such a strange paradox in the culture we live right now is how we handle or try to handle guilt. We've mostly dismissed guilt. In the modern mind, we've dismissed guilt. We prefer to think it's, you know, a, a burden that we've really done away with, that we've progressed beyond it's, people think it's such an oppressive moral category, right? Who is to judge me and my actions? I'm not guilty. We've psychologized guilt as sort of an unhealthy, repressed set of emotions. And yet, if you look around, guilt seems so more powerfully present than ever before in our culture. Think of all the wrongs that we face in this world, all that is just distorted and bent and twisted in our world. How do we remedy all those wrongs in the world? You see a starving child in Beirut or Syria, and you know what you gave is never enough. You know you could have done more, and you feel the pangs of guilt. Think of the environmental catastrophes we face, the climate catastrophes, and you you feel the guilt that I can never reduce my carbon footprint enough. Think of human trafficking and structural poverty and pollution and deforestation. I mean, there is this endless list of things pointing the finger of blame at you and I, and we know we cannot do enough to absolve the demands of justice on our conscience. And what we end up then is this buildup of scapegoating and shaming and condemnation of people constantly apologizing because we're trying to to find ourselves right with the world again. All this evidence shows us our need to be morally justified. We want a verdict on our lives. And the trouble is the verdict that we see all around is guilty. But we've done away with the category of guilt. So how, how do we handle it? We don't have the means of dealing with it anymore. And joy, this is why we're so joyless, because we will not find joy unless, simply by explaining guilt away, but unless we deal honestly with the sources of our guilt and when our need for atonement. Back to the parable, the prodigal son, he knows He knows he's made some massive mistakes in his life, colossal. And he is in that distant country, and he knows he doesn't deserve to have a place in his father's home. But he starts home anyway, 
knowing his guilt, carrying that burden with him, knowing he can never repair all that's lost, never repair all the de- the relationships that he has just killed. And he doesn't expect to be taken back as a son. In his speech that he keeps rehearsing, he just says, maybe I can find a place as your servant. Don't take me as your son. I know I'm not worthy. Take me back as a servant. But while he was still far off, we read, the father saw him. He was looking. Imagine how many days that father has walked to down that road, looking, hoping he might catch sight of his son. How often he looked out, scanning the horizon, just longing to catch sight of his son. And then one day he sees him. He's disheveled. He's slouched over. He's shuffling his way home. And the father just races down that road, showing way too much thigh with his robes hiked up. And he throws his arms around that kid. And the kid doesn't even get to finish his well-prepared speech because the father cries out, hurry, bring me the best robe, a ring, sandals, kill the fattened calf. Let's eat and celebrate. And we hear that phrase again. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate because what was lost is found. And here's the healing of that killjoy of guilt. Here is the doorway to joy. The father, he doesn't only forgive the son. That's part of it, obviously. All the wrongs are covered over by the father's goodness and grace. But there's more. The relationship is set right. The son is restored. The prodigal is put back to his place as the celebrated, cherished son that he is. He gets a robe and a ring and a feast. It's what the Bible calls justification. Through the death of Jesus Christ, the real burden of all of the guilt that we carry, it is taken from us. All of our sin, it is, all the wrongs, it is covered. But that debt of the sin that we could never pay for is taken care of through the death of Christ. And not only that, but our status, our status as as alienated from God, an enemy from God, that is changed too. And instead, we get the status of Jesus. His relationship as the dearly loved, cherished son of God, we get that status with God. And so the verdict now in our life is you are approved you are loved, you are cherished. And to be a Christian is one who is justified by faith, who's at peace with God, who's accepted by God. And the main mark of that person is one of unbridled joy. Unbridled joy because you have received something so good that you know you could never, ever get for yourself. But then there's the older son, the one who stayed, the one who's so good, the one who's good at obeying and duty. He's been there every day, working the fields. And this is where this whole series of parables have been going. First, one out of 99, then one out of 10, then one out of two sons, and now it's one out of one. And the point is sharp. Remember, Jesus is telling these stories to Pharisees and religious leaders who couldn't enter the beauty, the goodness of the celebrations of the hospitality that Jesus was showing to people who were returning home to the Father. Because to them, it didn't seem fair. Jesus, we're the religious people. We've been living the good life, Jesus. It's not fair. And I think we can all understand some of that sense of injustice 
there's a part of it that isn't fair, right? Forgiveness has this sense of being unjust. You can get forgiveness and justification when we rightly understand them. It doesn't deny the reality of justice. Forgiveness isn't this easy, you know, erasure of all the the just standards. To forgive means you actually name all the just and legitimate claims that you have against someone who has wronged you. But in the name of divine love, in the name of human solidarity, in the hope of, of a healed and reconciled world, we suspend those claims. That is so hard to do. And that's why forgiveness and justification by God and Jesus Christ and by us for others is so costly and often so rare because it is very challenging indeed. But when it happens, when it happens, it is the source of some of life's sweetest joy. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, When a person like the prodigal son acts irresponsibly or unjustly, what they do is they place that person at the center of the village all alone. And all the work in the village stops. And every man, woman, and child, they gather around in a circle around that accused individual. And then each person is given the opportunity to speak to that person, to the accused, one at a time. And what they speak is they begin to recall the good things about that person in the center of the circle. Every incident, every experience, all the positive attributes, all the good deeds, the strengths, the acts of kindness, they are recited carefully and at length. And at the end, when that person has been affirmed to the sky, when they have been rightly replaced, re Uh, given their status in the community, a huge joyous celebration takes place because the person is forgiven and restored. They are justified. That's the welcome that the father provides the younger son, being restored to our true identity, to receive our place in our family. I often think, oh, I, I long for circles like this, right? Don't we all need them? People to surround us, to remind us of what God has always been speaking to us, naming for us the, our true identity, speaking out the truth that we are forgiven, chosen from before time, that we are known and loved by God. Joy comes when we practice that identity, when we rehearse it in ourselves and we re- when we remind everyone else about that. And yet the older brother can't participate in that joy. He refuses. He's furious. And he refuses to join what is probably the biggest party his town has ever seen. And he stays on the outside of the party, looking in to a beautiful, joyous celebration. Why? What's keeping him out of the party? What's the kill joy for him? What is killing, robbing his joy? And it is his self-righteous moralism. He's been a good, a dutiful son, but he's missed everything. He never left his father's home, but he never entered his father's heart. Listen to him. All these years, I've been slaving for you. All these years, he's been so close to home, but so far away. He has taken on the identity of a servant, of a slave, not a son. 
He's still trying to earn his father's approval, trying to show what a good son he is, trying to prove how superior his moral record is. That's why he won't go in. He's better than that younger scoundrel of a son. That dynamic of self-righteousness just kills joy. And that comes both in religious and secular versions. It's this anxious superiority that's rooted in your moral performance. The need to demonstrate your good deeds. It's this deep insecurity that shows up in this pride, a defensiveness, a smugness often about your goodness, a judgmentalism, this need to put others down. Oh, it's ugly. There is no country that is so far from God, so distant from the Father's heart as self-righteous pride. And ultimately, it's a self-centeredness. The, the weight and heaviness of needing to be your own savior, to prove how approved you are. And with his eyes only on himself, on what he was doing, he never realized all that he had, all the grace that was always in front of him. He could not see it. Joy, it, it comes in being freed from yourself from your own self-importance. Joy is the experience of this total release of that burden from condemnation, the freedom to live with this light-hearted joy. This is what Jesus promises. This is the joy Jesus says no one can take away. Unbelievable joy comes from admitting that in a real way, no matter how good you are or how badly you've lived, you are lost. And when you do that, And you are found by the Father. All heaven rejoices with joy. The deepest joy you will know is by laying down even all your do-gooding and come home to the Father, to the place of rejoicing. To come home to the place where love isn't earned, but it is a gift of grace. To come home to your true identity, not something you construct, but the one God gives you, that you are God's cherished loved child. Come home to where those who have lived the worst of their lives and are so lost in their immorality are joined with those who are lost in some of the greater sins of pride and self-righteousness. Come to the place where you are home and where the wine flows and the grace is extravagant. This last parable, it's an unfinished story. It breaks the pattern. There's no celebration at the end, and we don't know what happens with the elder brother. We're left with him outside the party, still looking in, wondering, is he going to go in? And we're meant to finish the story ourselves. We're meant to ask, are we going to remain outside, outside of joy, clutching our own moral goodness, our own moral resume, Or are we going to release those signs of our own goodness and enter into the party and come home to the embrace of the Father and enjoy life in his arms? And you only get there by grace, friends. And so whether you're the prodigal or whether you're the older brother in this story, isn't it time for all of us to stop running, to stop our striving? Isn't it time to come home and claim our identity which is yours by grace. Isn't it time to come home to the Father, to come home to joy? It's yours for the taking. 
Amen.